we uh, started this passage of, uh, in Luke, the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, it's, if you want to find it, it's uh, Luke 16, uh, 19 to the end of the chapter. This really seems loud to me. Okay, let me, there's probably no, yeah? Is he? Good, good. Ah, could be. There seems like a lot of feedback or something, or too loud, maybe. How's that? Test, test. Is that better? Seems awful loud to me. I agree. Okay. How about in the back, Brenda? Not too loud? Okay. Sounds good, Larry. Thanks. Okay, so uh, we want to go, we want to read this passage, Luke 16, uh, 19 through verse 31 in uh, Luke. The rich man and Lazarus. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word and the depth of it. Uh, it's amazing, this passage, where every time we read it, we see two or, or more new things. And so, Father, we just thank you for your word. Father, that we could really make this a part of our lives and that we might truly walk differently 
and uh, know you closer and closer. So we just thank you for this word, and we just pray that these would be your words and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we started going through and hitting some highlights of this passage. And uh, I won't drag you through that again, but we started talking about some of the observations, which um, there's some real depth here, and, and uh, we could pr- probably spend a lot of time on each one of these observations. But um, if you recall, we started, and there are like eight or ten of these, and we'll probably find new ones. So this would be observations and application uh, that we can make a lot from this passage. Um, <clears throat> Before that, though, you know, there were some thoughts after. Akechi had a great thought. You know, we mentioned last time that this passage, it's really ominous, that, that there's an end in this life, and there are no second chances, was Akechi's point. And uh, that's what makes this even more ominous. And all week I was trying to think of putting friends of mine that are not saved in the position of this rich man. And we should think about that with the unsaved that friends of ours that this is what they face. Um, and so that's part of the application here. Um, and also the Hades or hell that's talked about uh, in this passage. You know, D.L. Moody had a great quote. He said, one shouldn't preach on hell unless one preaches in tears. And that's really part of this, how ominous uh, this passage is. So what are some observations? Well, it's interesting that uh, toward the end of this passage where it talks about somebody, uh, the rich man thought for sure that if somebody returns from the dead, was able to rise from the dead, that surely people will listen. Well, this is really Jesus' prophetic words about himself. He will, will return from the dead. And I was thinking, you know, in the centuries since, it it hasn't been a given that people would turn to him just because he came back from the dead. It's a historical fact. He rose from the dead. Does it seem to matter in in most of the people that have lived on the earth? So these are really prophetic words about himself and that we need an advocate uh, with the Father. We need a bridge across this chasm that's talked about in this in this passage. Um, We need a mediator. And in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So we we need that bridge over over this chasm. The other thing that's interesting in this passage uh, is that people, souls, spirits, um, are eternal. Personhood is maintained across this, this uh, across death. Um, we see this in a couple other places, like the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah are meeting with Jesus, and the the disciples knew immediately that was Moses and Elijah. Well, how did they know? I mean, it was pretty obvious. So, people are eternal, um, and that's one of the most interesting things about this passage: is that personhood is maintained. doesn't end in the ground. Um, death is not the end of all existence, which is what you hear from the, from the, from the natural man in most cases. <clears throat> One of the other things we mar- remarked about, too, was that uh, Lazarus 
is named. And uh, that, that this, they, some call this a parable. Uh, some don't think it's a, a strict parable because this could have actually been an occurrence that Jesus was talking about, um, a real occurrence. But, but Lazarus is named. The rich man is not. Maybe, maybe it's because the rich man really the, is sort of all the Pharisees together. You know, all the Pharisees acted like this, you know, purple and fine linen, and that if you live like that, then you're obviously blessed. Uh, sounds a little bit like the prosperity gospel in a way. Okay, we're back. Keep the electrons going there, Larry. Um, so the rich man is not named, maybe because he's, you know, the... the uh, epitome of all the Pharisees and the way they lived. Um, so, um, also, Lazarus being named, he um, is given a glimpse uh, into heaven. That doesn't happen a lot in Scripture. There are a few cases uh, that that happens. Uh, but he's um, really, the, the, the rich man is given this glimpse into heaven, even where he's from. Uh, and so that's a rare glimpse beyond the limitations of this life and Hades and hell, for sure, and to, as, as, a, as a witness to uh, the existence of heaven and Abraham's uh, bosom. So that's not only a rare glimpse, but a, it's, it's a witness to the glory that waits for those um, who are saved. Um, and again, it's observation we don't see much. Um, since the fall of man, where, you know, since that time, fellowship wasn't uh, complete. Um, <clears throat> a couple other cases, you can look at these. Stephen, where he glimpses into heaven and sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Uh, John, in Revelation, sees some glimpses. Ezekiel sees some great glimpses, but uh, this is, this is uh, pretty unique. The, um, the chasm, this is a pretty interesting verse. Uh, let me just read it again. Abraham says, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. So this impassable chasm uh, is, is fixed. Um, and there's probably a lot of theology that we could we, we could go into with this, but this this is that separation now since since Genesis three, um, and so notice the difference in wording. In order that those who wish to come over from here to you, maybe if Lazarus was so inclined, he's not able, he may not be able, but that none may cross over from there to us. Again, it's another part of that ominous aspect of this. So, the impassable chasm. Um, and again, it relates back to Genesis 3. If you want to turn there just briefly, we did this last week. But it's, it's just interesting to look at these passages in Genesis 3 and relate it uh, to here in Luke. So 
So if we start at, at 22, Genesis 3, 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, capital U, the, the triune Godhead, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, forever, and notice that dash. What does that dash mean? It's the alternative is too horrible to even contemplate. Unless he take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So man has to reach out and take from the tree of life, which is a perfect picture, picture of Jesus, like in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. That's the tree of life. Uh, we'll hear more about the tree of life in a second. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is another look at that separation, that chasm. Here in terms of the flaming sword, what is a sword? It's a divider. And so this flaming sword, which turned every direction, that's sort of a physical analogy, but it's a spiritual thing because he stationed the cherubim there as well. And so the flaming sword. So this is, this is another way to look at that, uh, that, that chasm. Notice also in this passage, if we go back to Luke, Notice the importance that uh, really Abraham, but Jesus, who is, is telling the story and it's recorded in Scripture, um, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This is the importance of Scripture. It's fundamental. Uh, it's not just a, you know, as we'll see the word uh, persuaded in the last verse, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. It's not just a logical argument. There's a moral aspect to this. And so um, Moses and the prophets, uh, the word here would be the Old Testament word, the law and the prophets, but Moses and the prophets. So it's how fundamental, uh, the fundamental importance of the, the word, the scriptures, uh, the word of God. Uh, and, you know, we'll see a lot of those prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled uh, in Jesus. They speak of him. Jesus himself said that. The Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, they speak of him. And, and so the, the, the fundamental nature of, of the word, the word of God here in transforming uh, a life. And so another observation, he who rose from the dead provided the bridge. This is the only gap across this, this chasm. Um, and, I, and I drew this last week, but it's probably good to review it. Some of you remember this is a navigator illustration where you have earth and you have man's religions that try to reach up to heaven, but 
only the bridge coming down from heaven via the cross in Jesus. That's the only way across this gap, this chasm, uh, which is infinite, really. And so all man's religions don't make it. It's what God provided the way of salvation. And this is the, the Navigator Bridge illustration, which, which is a good picture of this, this chasm in this passage. So he who rose from the dead provided this, this uh, bridge across this chasm. Um, one of the other things that's sort of obvious from this passage is that, that uh, hell is real. Hades is real, the place of the dead. Um, and it's separated from God. Um, and so it's a real place. And again, the natural man has other thoughts about that. Um, so what are some applications that we can make from this? What do you think some applications would be? Well, I'll tell you one. What's eternal? Thing, yeah, people, not things. People are eternal. And that's the way we should conduct our lives, as if people are eternal. Uh, not things. Walk as if they are destined for either hell or for uh, life eternally with the Savior and with God, uh, the advocate, the mediator between God and man. So, again, it's pretty convicting that we should walk as if everybody we encounter, it's an eternal soul and spirit. Um, and I guess the other thing is fairly obvious, too, is that the chasm exists. There's a separation between God and man, and uh, pretty stark in this passage. Um, and there's only one path, really, across that chasm, and it's provided by Jesus. Last week, I mentioned uh, uh, a commentary. Uh, there's some good notes on this passage, a little, little different picture than what we've talked about from uh, John MacArthur. Listen to some of these notes. Um, the name Lazarus. Clearly, this is not the Lazarus in John 11 who died at a later time. This beggar was the only character in any of Jesus' parables given a name, which we'd already mentioned. Some, therefore, have speculated that this is not an imaginary tale, but an actual incident that really took, took place. Christ employs it in the same fashion as in all his parables, uh, as just such a lesson. In this case, for the benefit of the Pharisees. Again, the rich man is the picture of the way the Pharisees paraded around, you know, in purple and fine linen, uh, as if that was a measure of true spirituality. Um, that's what they thought. Um, the man in this parable, the, the rich man, is sometimes called uh, dives. I guess that's how you say it, after the Latin uh, word for rich. Sometimes you'll see that written. Um, the mention of crumbs, sores, and dogs all made this poor man appear odious in the eyes of the Pharisees. Um, they were inclined uh, to see all such things as proof of divine disfavor, which is interesting. Um, they would have avoided such a person as not only unclean, but also despised by God. Uh, the term, uh, we've talked a little bit about it, Abraham's bosom. What does this mean? Well, this same expression, but it's found only here in Scripture, was used in the Talmud, uh, the law, the first five books, uh, as a figure for heaven. 
So this was the same as saying heaven, Abraham's bosom. You can see that sense in the passage. The idea that Lazarus was given a place of high honor, reclining next to them, next to uh, Abraham at the heavenly banquet. And, and again, let me just highlight the difference. We talked a little bit about this, but, but as they depart, look at the difference here. Now, it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Can you picture that? Carried away by the angels. Contrast that with, um, and the rich man also died and was buried. That's a little different picture, not the same glorious picture of being carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom or heaven that we're talking about. Uh, here. In Hades, that term, the suggestion that a rich man would be excluded from heaven would have scandalized the Pharisees at this time. Um, Especially galling was the idea that a beggar, now John MacArthur said, who ate from his table, remember he just yearned to take the crumbs from the table. He didn't necessarily, he wasn't even brought inside the gate. Uh, he yearned for those crumbs, uh, didn't appear to get any. Um, this individual was granted the place of honor next to Abraham. Hades itself was the Greek term for the abode of the dead in general, you know, secular Greek. In the Septuagint, it's used to translate the, the Hebrew word sheol, which referred to the realm of the dead in general, without necessarily distinguishing between righteous or unrighteous souls. However, in New Testament usage, Hades always refers to the place of the wicked prior to final judgment in hell. So the imagery here is rich uh, that Jesus uses paralleled the common rabbinical idea that Sheol had two parts, one for the souls of the righteous and the other for the souls of the wicked, separated by this impassable gulf that we've talked about. But there is no reason to suppose, as some do, that Abraham's bosom spoke of a temporary prison for the souls of Old Testament saints who were brought to heaven only after he had actually atoned for their sins. He, Jesus, had actually atoned for their sins. Scripture consistently teaches that the spirits of the righteous dead go immediately into the presence of God. And that's what we see in this passage. The angels immediately take him to Abraham's bosom. And again, the the connection with and the presence of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration belies the notion that they were confined in some compartment of Sheol until Christ finished his work. And so immediately uh, taken to be with uh, God forever and ever. Uh, This picture of the rich man in agony. Christ pictured Hades as a place where the unspeakable torment of hell had already begun. Uh, Among the miseries featured here are unquenchable flame uh, and also an accusing conscience fed by undying undying memories of lost opportunity uh, and the permanent irreversible separation from God and everything good. Uh, And I just don't think we can plumb the depths of that, uh, how how dire, uh, how ominous that is. When... The rich man says, send him Lazarus, as if he's still some sort of a servant. Send him to my father's house. The rich man retained a condescending attitude toward Lazarus, even in hell. 
repeatedly asking Abraham to send Lazarus to wait on him. Also, the flames of hell do not atone for sin or purge hardened sinners from their depravity. It's unquenchable. Uh, it's, you know, this, this definite turning point that there's no uh, recourse. And again, they have Moses and the prophets. That refers to the Old Testament uh, scriptures. They will not be persuaded. And that's what we've seen over the centuries since the resurrection. This speaks powerfully of the singular sufficiency of Scripture. Let me just say that again. Uh, this speaks powerfully of the singular sufficiency of Scripture to overcome unbelief. The gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation, as in Romans 1. Since unbelief is at its heart a moral, not just a logical or intellectual discussion, rather than just an intellectual problem, no amount of evidences will ever turn unbelief to faith. Did you hear that? It's amazing. No amount of evidences will ever turn unbelief to faith. But the revealed word of God has inherent power to do so. So again, some notes from uh, John MacArthur. Any questions or comments so far? Have you all noticed how quiet Porter is? He doesn't want to have any comments or questions because he doesn't want to delay this path of mine toward marriage counseling. When I start talking about the physics of Hebrews 1 here, if we have, we're kind of running out of time, Porter. I was really put up to this. Don't any of you have some comments or questions? Leonard, help me out here. I could, brother. <laughs> oh, gosh. Even the guys in the Sunday night group turn on you eventually. Okay, so that's the rich man and Lazarus. If none of you have any other comments, we have a few minutes left. Some of you know I, I've, I've dreamt about talking about the physics of Hebrews 1. And every time I do that, Barb just... No, don't do that. They'll hate it. They don't even understand what entropy is. You, you know, you'll kill them. And so I probably will need counseling when we're through with this. Even... Thanks, Jeff. That's great support. <laughs> okay, well, uh, my only caveat is that this is just, because we don't have a lot of time, this is just an introduction. And the whole point of this is the the interface of the natural world, the physical world, with the Lord Jesus, um, which is, is very deep. And there are some important bookends uh, in Scripture. Uh, and Hebrews 1 is one of those places. If you want to turn there, Porter, he's probably already there. Um, and again, you know, the Scripture itself, it's, it's not a science textbook. But wherever it touches on science in the natural world, it's absolutely true. Um, and some of it is so deep that we'll never understand it. It's like Charlie has said, we'll be talking about these scriptures for all eternity in heaven. Um, so this is, this is one of these passages. Uh, this is Hebrews 1. Uh, just let me read uh, uh, verses 2 and 3. In these last days has spoken... 
God, after he spoke to the prophets, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So for decades, I've thought about this verse and, and how the fact that uh, the Lord Jesus in John 1, and we may look at that in a second, uh, is the creator of the universe, um, the word. Um, what does it mean when he upholds the universe? That's uh, an active term. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Or in uh, uh, Colossians 1.15, uh, it's 15 and 16, in him all things hold together. And so I knew that that always related to the fundamental forces of physics, if you will. You know, we have those. When Einstein did his work, they thought about gravitation and electromagnetism. Now we have two more forces to add to that, the nuclear forces, um, you, you know, of the inner atom, uh, the nucleus. And we still don't understand how that works, how the nuclear forces really hold all these positive charges that are very powerful, very, very close together. But Scripture says, in him, all these things hold together. And it's beyond, really, what we can understand. Um, but what does this really mean? Well, so I thought that, you know, there has to be a connection to, uh, and Einstein, you know, when he died in 1955, had worked uh, ever since his major discoveries on coming up with one equation that would unify all these different fundamental forces. Gravity, electromagnetism, which are very, very different, but they still have a field nature. Just like when Newton wrote his law of gravity, it's one over r squared. That's a field. And so there's an electromagnetic field, but nobody was ever able to bridge that gap. Einstein worked almost 30 years uh, before he died in 1955 on trying to unify all these different forces in one single equation or set of equations. And actually when he passed away, he had a, a, a pad on his lap that he was still working on the unified theory, the unified field theory. Well, the problem with that is it's not an equation, it's a person. Uh, that's what unifies all these forces, these fundamental forces. Well, that's not the complete story. When you look later in Hebrews 1, uh, you see a couple of verses, uh, Hebrews 1, 10, and 11, if you're still there. Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay, didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they will all become old as a garment. So there's something else operating here. This relates back to Psalm 102, if you want to turn there. It's an interesting comparison. Um, okay, Psalm 102. This is a direct reference um, from the author of Hebrews. Whether it was Paul or not, a lot of people believe it was Paul. Uh, the depth of it would sure indicate that. So if you go to Psalm 102, verse 25, 
And if you can keep your, which I'm not able to do here, obviously, keep your finger in Hebrews 1. Psalm 105 and 26. Of old found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Compare that with... Um, they will perish, but thou remainest in Hebrews 1.11, and they will all become old as a garment. So look at the differences. For one, in, Hebrew, in Psalm 102.26, he says, even they will perish. A lot of people look up at the heavens and say, oh, those things are eternal. You know, they're going to last forever. Well, we can see with galactic collisions and lots of other things that they're perishing. They're running together. They're wearing out like a garment. Uh, even they will perish, but thou dost endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Well, what's the word in, in Hebrews 1? All of them will become old as a garment. So the author of Hebrews, if it was Paul, uses the term become old, whereas the psalmist writes, will wear out. So the heavens are wearing out. Well, where does that start? It's interesting if you we're wearing out your Bibles here. If you go back to Genesis um, 1, between Genesis 1 and 2, look what it says in Genesis 1.31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And in, in Genesis 2, 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed. Completed, completely done. And as we saw in the previous verse, it was not just good, it was very good. Well, if we see in, this, in the Psalms that the heavens are wearing out, growing old, what happened? What happened between these two passages? Well, Genesis 3. If you look at Genesis 3, 17, and there's, there's some depth here that we, we sort of have to interpret a little bit, but uh, if you look at Genesis 3, 17, cursed is the ground because of you. So now things that were very good are cursed. And what is the word ground there? If you, if you look at it a little deeper, it's not just dirt and soil. It really is another term for elements. Because remember, out of this ground is how he made man. All the elements in the complex human body come from this substance. So you could interpret this word as elements. So the elements uh, are fallen in a sense. Uh, they're cursed. Uh, they're wearing out just like we saw in Psalms and Hebrews 1. Oh, gosh, this time, the clock is really going slow here. Porter, do you have something you want to... In that word, I'm just translating elements of matter. Right. It's exactly what that... That's sort of the deeper, because it's not just dirt and ground in the soil. It's elements, really. Matter, everything. Because that's how he made man, and the complex... Uh, all the, the complex matter in man. So, how does this relate to Hebrews 1? Well, if you go back there, and I promise this is the last time, it might be that when it talks about 
Jesus in, in, in holding all things together in in first in, uh, in Colossians one fifteen, uh, or in um, here in Hebrews one. What does it say again? Okay, so Hebrews one three, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Part of that upholding is not just the connection to all the forces that we observe, the the unified field that Einstein was looking for, but he's upholding everything with respect to entropy. You know, things are not running down immediately. They're not falling together immediately, but there's this equilibrium, this balance that Jesus maintains because uh, he upholds all things by the word of his power as in, in Hebrews 1, which we see later in Hebrews 1 that the, the author is talking about the heavens are the work of thy hands and they will perish. They will wear out like a, they will become old or wear out like a garment. So the natural world is fallen uh, and it's running down, but it's upheld by Jesus himself um, who really essentially, because of his nature, infuses everything and upholds it with these forces that are observable, but also something deeper. Um, and earlier in verse 3, there's, a, there's a, a, an interesting connection that all these forces may be fundamentally electromagnetic, related to light. And while well, God is light, you know. Uh, but here, and he is the radiance of his glory. That might be a hint as to the nature of his upholding power, infusing thermal radiation, if you will, into things to keep the temperature in equilibrium balance. I don't know, it's, 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 it's very complex, but there may be a hint there because he is the radiance of his glory, a hint at to how he upholds uh, all things by the word of his power. And Jeremiah says, is not my, my word like fire. So there's, again, that thermal connection with, with entropy. And I didn't go in a lot of detail on entropy because I would have, again, had needed marriage counseling to, to do that. It is. Everything's running down. And the best example of entropy is the sun. The sun is radiating electromagnetic radiation, a real broad spectrum. And the temperature is um, about 5825 degrees Kelvin, the, the, the absolute temperature scale. And so when the sun radiates that energy from uh, nuclear fusion, where because of the sun's size, the gravity is, is pushing uh, hydrogen together such that at the center, it's, it's forced together so you get nuclear fusion reactions. And so that goes to the surface, and so the, t- the temperature inside is much higher. But the sun is radiating these, this electromagnetic radiation or photons out into the you know, vastness of space. How do you get that back? So energy is very ordered here, becomes disordered because it's diffuse throughout space. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Eventually, the sun will run out of hydrogen fuel. And all that, all those photons, all the electromagnetic energy is radiated into the vastness of space. How do you get that back? You can't. It becomes from order to disorder. That's really the, the second law. Okay.
Yes. And it was kind of where time started, too. Then God said, let there be light. And there was immediately light. You ever wanted. Any other questions or comments? Okay, Porter, you got me into this, so you're going to close us in prayer.